Hi, I'm Aaron, and welcome to the Hip Hop Hustle Podcast, a podcast all about, well, you guessed it, hip hop. I will be interviewing artists and exploring the genre I love. My hope is that you will begin to love it as much as I do, if not more. Please like and subscribe and follow me on Instagram at the underscore hip hop hustle for any upcoming podcast news. All right, let's get into it. I'm with the one and only Master Ace. If you don't know who Master Ace is, I think you've been sleeping for way too long, but Master Ace has been in the game since the 80s. So a real OG with the Juice crew and still rapping over 30 years later. That is insane in terms of how long you've been in the game like you've been alive for like you've been in hip-hop for at least for more than half your life that is amazing to me and you know you would have seen the evolution of hip-hop and you would have seen all the changes that come through and and as a fan and I was only born in the 90s so like I look back on on the era that you lived through and I just imagine what it would have been like it was um I mean, it was a, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we were young. We didn't. Nobody had the nobody had the inclination that hip hop was going to turn into this global industry making billions of dollars. Nobody saw that. Um, but it was just something that we, you know, did in the neighborhood for fun, to entertain ourselves, um, and to kind of flex a little bit of muscles in terms of like of competition in the neighborhood rather than fighting or, you know, something like that. This was like another way of having competition but with other kids in the neighborhood. And um, like I said, it was no way of us knowing that it would turn into what it became. Do you think that, you know, maybe at the beginning you didn't see, but was there a time that you were like seeing, okay, now I'm seeing it kind of explode. Do you have like a moment or an era where you're like, this is where I really see it take off? I think the first real big moment, because up until the point that Run DMC dropped walk this way um it was kind of viewed as a a black music that was for people of color it wasn't for everyone and when run dmc decided to do um that collaboration and do walk this way it opened up to this whole entire new audience that didn't know anything about hip-hop or wasn't interested in hip-hop and to me that was the big door opener um welcoming in uh you know fans from around the world that were more like rock fans that didn't really know what hip-hop was uh that started to embrace it listen to it and become fans of it so they really opened the door for everybody in terms of that worldwide acceptance um among the white audience and, and other audiences besides the you know the urban yeah i think you're you're definitely right as soon as it hit the white audiences it definitely kind of exploded from there it's it's a weird phenomenon where obviously there was a lot of development before that like you know there was it, it means a lot and now it feels like you know hip-hop is all that any anyone is talking about really in terms of a genre it is the the most popular genre it's the fastest growing genre um, and you look at its time frame, like it's only been around since the 70s, really, like in terms of its first inception. It's still a really young genre in, in terms of... It music. is. Yeah, it is. Um, compared to other genres, definitely, it's brand new still. Um, we're still... We still haven't seen, you know, um, artists... Or, or Some artists are in their 60s now, mm -hmm. um, but 
what we what we really haven't seen is artists, hip hop artists transcend age and continue to do music, continue continue to tour um in their 60s. Um I think we'll see that soon though cuz there's a there's a few acts. I mean, you know, the the forefathers are now in their 60s, the the Grandmaster Kaz, Melly Mel's I, I don't know if Kumo D is yet, but they're either in their 60s or or right on the cusp of 60. Um so we'll we'll you know the next probably 10 years we're gonna see what it what, what this turns into. Are we gonna see you know a 60-year-old artist on tour performing? That's that's something I couldn't that's something I couldn't picture when I was younger. You know, I remember going to um Chuck D's 33rd birthday party when I was when I was when I was new in the industry. And I remember saying, wow, he's 33. Like that, like that was just so old to me. I couldn't even yeah. <laughs> comprehend that he was that old. Um, and it just stuck with me. That's why I remember 33rd birthday, because as a young guy, because I was like probably 20, I wasn't 30 yet. You know, I was like probably 27 or eight. I don't know how old he, how much older than me he is. But um, at that time, 33 just seemed like ancient to me. And here he was, you know, doing tours and rapping. So here now this is 30 years later. So Chuck, Chuck might be approaching 62. He might be like right, right there on the cusp also. It feels like a, a strange evolution. We now have the the OGs of hip hop, like the people who've been in hip hop for a long time. You know, you've got the resurgence of Method Man come back and he's obviously been with Wu-Tang and that album dropped 93 and he's back releasing more music and you've got people like, you know, potentially Dr. Dre still out there. I think he's in his 60s now. So, you know, there are whispers around him potentially doing more tracks. And then you've obviously got the young cats that are that are coming up with the trap style. So there is kind of this weird kind of battle where when they are seeing older artists come through, like you've got the Griselda crew coming through, Benny the Butcher, they're in their 30s, and that's where they've actually started to to see success. So it's definitely changed in terms of the age group that hip-hop really appeals to. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're still a separate young, you know, teeny bopper age kids that listen to another type of hip-hop. Um, it's the stuff they listen to is not really my taste. I can't get with it, but it's what they listen to. And, and they probably don't listen to, to Benny and, and to Conway and those guys because they probably look at them as not, not their peer group. So they listen to younger cats. Do you think that, you know, this is an, just another part of hip hop, that there will be another evolution where, you know, the trap sound and, you know, it's not really that lyrical any like that's, it's more of a vibe. Whereas do you think there'll be another switch back to more of a lyrical miracle type blend of a trap vibe as well? I can only hope so. Um, because hip hop has always been intelligent, even though there was always ignorant music and, you know, music that wasn't necessarily, um, you know, expanding one's mind, that was always part of it. And so, you know, I, I don't look forward to a day when it's not about lyrics at all, when it's only about a vibe, when what you're saying is not important. Um, I don't look forward to those to that time. I hope that we don't we never reach that point. Um, um, because hip hop was supposed to kind of help deliver certain important messages to to the people, and I don't want that to be lost. 
I don't think it it will be lost, but you're right that it is becoming less mainstream that, you know, if you are a real hip hop fan and if you do want to hear people actually spit bars and construct rhyme schemes and actually deliver a message, you actually have to know what you're looking for. You have to be willing to search deeper into the underground hip hop rather than what's mainstream. That's right. You're right. How do you feel in terms of, for you, in terms of your evolution as an artist? Because you would have seen all the style changes. And now, you know, moving from the 80s, I can even, going back and listening to your music, I can see just the change in your technique and your own development. And now, you know, you, you've you got it down pat. Like, you've got your sound right. You've got everything in a really kind of comfortable place where you know what you're doing. How do you see that development? It just took me a while to figure out what my voice was, what my lane was. Um, You know, the music industry will condition you to believing that if your songs aren't on mainstream radio, that you have no value. And at least that's how it is in the States. Um, and, And so, you know, I was in that system for a while and and stuck in that mode of oh i gotta make something for the clubs that people can dance to i gotta make something that the girls are gonna like and re- and relate to and sing along to um and once i stopped caring what the masses thought that was when to me that's when i really found my stride um, and because it became just about making music that I thought was good, that felt good to me, that sounded good to me, that was saying what I wanted to say, communicating what I wanted to communicate. Um, yeah, once I got to that place, which took a, n- a number of years, you know, I started in my first album came out in 90. Uh, my first, the first time people heard me on a record was 88. Um, so it really wasn't until 2001 when I dropped Disposable Arts, when I was outside of the major uh, mechanism of m- the music business, where executives are in boardrooms telling you what kind of music that you need to be making or what kind of collaborations you need to be doing. Um, people that don't even go to hip hop clubs is try- trying to you know, dictate and, pre- and, and push you in a particular direction creatively. Once I got out of that system and it was i can't describe how freeing it was for me but disposable arts was really the beginning of my new career because that because that's what it really was it was became i became an independent artist and from that point forward i was only going to do music that i wanted to do i didn't have to answer to any music executives um it wasn't about getting radio play it wasn't about making people dance or the girls you know singing along once i got beyond that that's when the real evolution happened for me and how did you manage obviously a long time in that you know mindset of being with a record label a long time with executives telling you what to do how did you manage that length of your career like that's still a long time if you dropped your first album in 90 you left 2001 that's still over 10 years how did you kind of get used to it is there something that you you were doing like on the side that helped you manage that or was it just you know day by day did you see it as this is kind of what I have to do honestly I was in the studio making records making these formulaic records 
um, that I thought would appease the label and allow me to keep my record deal. And it felt horrible. Like I hated having to rhyme about certain stuff that I wouldn't normally rhyme about. And I would always try to be clever where, you know, I, it wasn't like I'm saying that I'm flossing and I'm doing this. I would just rap about the scene and people in the club and they're doing this, they're drinking bottles and popping bottles and doing this and doing that. Um, and I tried to like remove myself from the narrative and just sort of be a, uh, a reporter of what I was seeing to try to give that audience what they what, what the label said that they wanted to hear. Um, but to be honest with you, it didn't feel good, man. It wasn't what I wanted to be doing. I listen back to some of those songs now. I cringe. Like, I'm like, ah, like, why? I would never have made that record if not for the situation that, that I was in. And some of the some of the music is not bad. It's just you can hear, you can hear me trying to follow a formula. And to me, that's not where the best music is made. Yeah, I agree with you. I think right now, I think we're we're coming through that at the moment, like in a new way where the trap beats, there is a formula to a trap beat where, you know, you put certain number of hi-hats, you put some drums, and then you've got that formula approach. You've got the auto-tune, but what it does, it it kind of reduces the art form. Whereas you can see the real people like Buster Rhymes' new album, he went back to just going to, you know what, unique beats, going back to what the art is really all about. And the success that he's had over that really shows that, there is always going to be an appetite for people who have genuine music who come from a place where they actually speak about what they want to speak about. Yeah, I love I love what Buster did on his most recent album because he pushed the envelope and it was always important. Artists like Buster were always important to the culture because he was always going to do something that was so outside the box of what anybody was doing and maybe people wouldn't understand it or get with it. But for me as a creative, I need to hear that weird stuff because it's like, oh, wow, like there's no rules. Like you can just, you know, you can just loop Bell Biv DeVoe and, and, and just rap over the, the, drum, the drum loop. Like it's not what I necessarily would do, but it just communicates that it's, it's super important to be creative and to push the envelope and 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 go further than the last group of people did. And that's why I've always appreciated about Buster. Some of those weird beats that he used to rap over, you know, in the 90s, when 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 those things dropped, they were so some of that stuff was so weird sounding, dope, but just like that, I would have never thought to rhyme to this this way. Um, and that's what opens up the minds of us artists as to okay, like, it's okay to, like, do something a little weird, like, and, and see see where it goes. Um, I love that. Yeah, take those risks because, yeah. you know, for, for people who take the risks, it, it shows others that, that you can do it. But do you have anyone that you continue to look for, you know, when they drop music, you're like, all right, let's see what they did on this project. Do you have any artists where you're like, you know what, for from what I've seen, they're pretty much fire and it's something that I can get with? Well, Jay Electronica was a guy that, for me, I was always checking for whatever he was dropping because, once again, 
he thought outside the box. His cadence, his rhyme patterns, the, the words that he used, some of the, the phrasing that he used um, was different than everything that I had ever heard. And, and, and that's what pushes the culture forward is cats who, when you hear them, it's like, I've never heard anything like this. Nobody's ever rhymed like this. Um, and then the, the the style of beats that he was using was also very odd, very, very weird, very non-traditional. And whether people got with it or didn't get with it, for me as a creative person, it opened up my mind to what else we could do, how else, how else we could create music that was dope and different. And um, so he comes to mind right away um, because of that, you know. Um, there's probably a couple others, but like off the top of my head, that's like the guy that, that, that immediately jumped out at me. Well, I think Jay Electronica is a very good example of, again, he's probably more of, in my opinion, like a rapper's rapper. Like if you're in hip hop, you're a big fan of Jay Electronica. And unless you're willing to obviously listen to something that's different, unless you're willing to listen to the lyrics that he's and the things that he's talking about, you're probably not going to click with it. But there is definitely a huge following for Jay. Um, and he hasn't done, like, he doesn't release a project every single year, but when he does, you know that it's going to be fire. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I wish I wish he would put more music out. Um, you know, I don't know what, I don't know what constraints he, he's under, or maybe if he just, if he's, if he's a perfectionist, some of us are just so much of, of perfectionists that nothing's ever re really ready or finished or done. Um, but yeah, I, I hope he keeps bringing, bringing joints. And, and the thing about him is you can tell from the music that He's not trying to be on the radio. That's you know, if he ends up on the radio, great. But he's not. He's not making that effort to be on the radio. He's not getting, you know, Rihanna to sing a hook or one of these R and B, you know, superstars to come in and sing a hook over a really traditional sounding beat. And he's just gonna, you know, insert rhymes here. Like, cause there's a lot of those records out where it's just you could tell that the song was made before the rapper even heard it. The hook was there, the beat was there, and they just left the. They just left the verse the verse sections open and you literally walk in the studio, write two verses, two and a half verses, lay it down and the song is finished. Um, and I'm glad that guys like, like, like Jay Electronica don't, don't follow that type of formula. Well, I was going to ask you, how do you kind of deal with your, the perfectionist? I think there's a perfectionist in all of us where we want, you know, once we release something, we want it to be perfect, but that, I think for me personally, it's more the trying to attain perfect is the goal rather than actually being perfect because perfect is impossible to get in my opinion. But how do you manage your own expectations and how do you manage like, you know, coming off and being too harsh on your own music? Well, I'm much, I'm much better now than I was 15 years ago. Um, but you know what? I've been in some sessions with people who are so much of, of perfectionists that it made me go like, this is nuts. Like, okay, this is not cool. We shouldn't be sitting here for two hours EQing a snare. Like, and, and, and so seeing people that were further down the spectrum of, of perfectionism 
made me realize that I wasn't that bad and also made me be more clear about why it's okay to be a perfectionist, but at a certain point, it's okay to just let go and be happy with what you have and trust what you have is good and just and just let the people hear it. Do you have any advice for people who are, you know, starting, like if you're in hip hop, you're starting, you want to make your mark, but they're, they're in their own head. Do you have any advice for, for people like that? You know, a lot of those kind like to me, those people aren't naturals. They're kind of forcing it a little bit. Um, if you're in your own head and you're overthinking everything you're doing, then you're not a natural at, at this. And, um, you know, maybe you should focus on production or writing for other people. Um, this thing for everybody, like, you know, getting behind the mic and spitting and doing it in front of, you know, crowded rooms and, you know, feeling confident with the bars that you're saying and the music that you're dropping. Some people struggle with that part of it because they're they're bearing their soul and they don't know that maybe their fear, fear rejection. They don't know what the reaction is going to be. Um, and you got to get past that. Like you, you, you really got to get past that. And um, if you can't get past that part of it, then maybe there's another route for you. Maybe it's not being an artist. Maybe it's something else. Yeah. And I think the challenge is trusting yourself. I think you, you kind of touched on that where, you know, you're bearing a soul, but you think for whatever reason that people won't, you know, vibe with it. But at some point, if you don't trust yourself, how is somebody else going to? So, you know, and you'll get feedback anyway. So if you really want it, what hurts careers is not dropping music rather than actually releasing music. Like you'd rather drop an album every 12 months and make sure that something's coming out and you'll learn in that process. But if you sit on an album for three years and you haven't released anything, well, how are you going to learn from that? It's really hard to learn from that experience if you haven't actually gone through the route of, releasing gone through the route of let's say what people say what's the feedback how are people reacting yeah that's absolutely right um you gotta have you gotta be able to have no fear and and trust trust what you're doing and let the chips fall where they may if people don't like it okay people don't like it it maybe doesn't matter to you if people like it if that's the case that's that's okay if it really matters to you that much then you need to figure out what, what about it they don't like? And, and some people can't take that that criticism, that that part of it, some, a lot of people struggle with that. Uh, and so, you know, I don't, the reason I don't struggle with criticism is because I really don't care what people have to say about it. I'm long as I'm confident with it and I don't feel any, um, any hesitation about what I cr- created, that's all that matters to me. And, and that definitely, it is attributable to obviously your longevity in the game as well. Like you said that you reckon you hit your, your, your peak years after 2000. So that obviously has come of years of, you know, everybody has doubt. Everybody has those moments where, you know, you don't feel as good as you want to feel. And then at some point you learn to let that go. And it is all about that learning process. Right. Absolutely. In terms of for you, because I also, in doing a bit of research, I also uh, learned that you were diagnosed with MS as well um, in 2000. And, you know, you've been living that with that for a long time. You kept it under wraps 
um, for for over a decade. Um, how are you going now in terms of you know on that journey? And do you find that it influences you? I mean, it had a it had a big influence on the album I dropped in two thousand and one. Um, that album was made right after getting that news and that diagnosis and it sort of lit a different kind of fire under me and it made me first of all not care about the industry or what anybody had to say it just gave me a new resolve for what I was doing and I said you know um it doesn't matter what people think put out put out the records that you want to put out say what you want to say so that the so at the end of it all there's no regrets and and that's why the you know the last song on the album is that because that was me kind of like laying it all out there I didn't think I was going to do another album after that and so I, I I didn't know you know what the disease how I was going to progress um how fast it was going to progress and where I was going to be in 10 years so my my mind my mindset at that time was I got this disease I might not be able to be so active going forward so let me make the exact record I want to make. And if I never make another record, I can say, okay, that that last record, no influence. It was all me. It's what I wanted to do. I'm happy with it. And that would be the end of it. I think that was like from when, when I listened to it, it sounds like you were free at that point. Like you were like, you know, you weren't, the, the shackles were released. You were just able to just really go for it without holding anything back. And and that's what you want. That's what you want as an artist. You know, a lot of the cats that are on the radio, the mainstream cats, you know, they're, you know, I, I don't want to say, I don't want to use the word slave because that's, that's, that's not a fair comparison, but they are, um, they are indebted to these record labels and they live and die with every hit or non-hit. Um, and careers can be made or, made or broken based on one record. And, you know, if they're fortunate to get a hit, it's on the radio, you know, a hundred times a day. The next fear for them is, well, what about the next record? Um, because they know if they don't come with the next one, then the label is on to the next one. Um, and there's so many examples of that in the last like five to 10 years. So many examples of that where brand new artist comes on the scene, drops a big record, is killing the radio, it's worldwide, big ass radio record, and they don't have a follow-up. And they disappear from everybody's, you know, consciousness because they didn't have the they didn't have a good follow-up and because you know that record was probably a formulaic record that just worked you know they they all put their heads together and came up with this catchy chorus and the rhymes didn't really matter much but trying to re recreate that for a lot of these young artists is very difficult and they find out after that first hit how tough it is so they make a whole bunch of money that first year year and a half two years and then when it's time to drop another record there's a there's a major uh struggle for, for a lot of them well i think part of the challenge is a lot of them chase that biggest check so you know when you have a good song you're going to have a lot of record labels coming after you and they'll they'll go after the biggest payday rather than <clears throat> the best fit and sometimes right. you gotta sacrifice 
you know, a bit of a payday today for the longevity of your career. When you look at an artist, the key to an artist is long-term longevity. It's not, you know, I get paid in the next two years and then I disappear. You'd rather be in an environment where you feel like you can create. I mean, listen, if, if, if you're smart with your money and you got one hit, you're a one hit wonder, but it sold 10 million records, but they're not smart with their money. They, they, they're, they're buying, you know, Bentleys and, and, and jewelry and dumb stuff. And so they're living the life. It's like a three, four year window where they're living it up. They're spending it up, living it up, buying, going to this Gucci store and all these designer stores, buying up the different outfits and clothes and sneakers and shoes and all of that to, to, to you know, give off this appearance of wealth. And not realizing that in five years, that same money's not going to be coming in the same way. And now what do you do? Um, a lot of them in the States, a lot of them go to reality TV because that's that's the only route they can go. Um, they can't get another hit on the radio. So they 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 try to get into television. Yeah. Well, I, do you think part of it is that they haven't done enough in terms of they haven't grinded for long enough, like you get a one-hit wonder. Some it's usually someone who just bursts on the scene. It's like you know the right person yeah. hears it at the right time, and they haven't done enough, you know, of grind and enough of groundwork to really understand that this is not usual, and therefore they don't really appreciate. It's like a lotto winner in my mind. Like you win the lottery, and all those people, guaranteed in three years, their money's gone. That's a that's a really good analogy. I, I always call the music business. I always compare the music business to the lottery when I speak to young people, young artists and stuff, because I try to make them understand that if you put all your eggs in this, in, like if you put all your eggs in this basket and, and say, OK. I got this little nine to five job. Every dime I make, I'm going to spend it on lottery tickets. Um and just cross my fingers and hope for the best. Well, the the odds are very, very tough. Just like they are in the lottery, the odds are just that tough in the music business as far as making it and and, and staying on. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a very good good analogy that the lottery. And you want to invest in yourself. Like you look at examples like 50 Cent. I talk about 50 Cent a lot, but he invested in himself. He invested in his belief that he would be able to do it and he didn't you know he any he could turn around after get rich or die trying and sit back and go i can live off this for the rest of my life but he didn't and if 50 cent didn't then you got to look at you know what are you doing with your money same as shaquille o'neal like shaquille o'neal had no understanding of money management and then he put the right people in the right places and you now look at what he's doing and he owns businesses and and that is where the longevity is it's not just music if you have passion you can make it in any business it doesn't have to be music itself that's right for you how does it because when i look at the people you've influenced in your career like eminem attributes a lot of his kind of what he learned in terms of his skill and studying like he studied your work how does it feel to know that arguably one of the greatest hip-hop artists of all time has gone back and gone, I actually learned my craft off someone like yourself. Well, he's, he's always credited a lot of different or myself included, but you know, he's, he's credited a, a few, several names, 
And but that's the nature of hip hop. We all influence each other. We all feed off of each other. Um, the same way he was listening to me and Redman and Kane and Cool G Rap and people like that when he was coming up, and that's how he sort of figured out what it was that he wanted to do. Um, before him, I was listening to, you know, Rakim and KRS-One and Big Daddy Kane and LL Cool J, trying to figure out, you know, where I was going, what I was doing, going to do with with my skill, with my talent. Um, it's a cycle. We all feed off of each other. I mean, we really all do. Well, I, I think the cool thing is that, like, you know, there are probably countless number of artists that you would have influenced, like in terms of, you know, people who would have come across your music and countless number of artists who would have gone, I can take a little bit of this. This is a good lesson to learn and this is what I can do in my music. Yeah, um, I've definitely heard a few albums. When I first heard um, Kanye's debut, yeah, when I first heard that album, I immediately felt like he had heard my album, Disposable Arts. And in some ways, and if, if not, not that he copied it or, you know, uh, anything like that. I just felt that he heard it and it opened up his mind to, to doing something with a, with, a, with, a, with a school theme, a college theme. And, you know, he took it in his own direction. But that's to me, that's cool. Like he, and I've never heard anybody ask him that question or. I've never heard him credit me in any way for that. I don't know if he actually did hear my album. Um, maybe it was just a great minds think alike situation. But um, when I heard it, I immediately was like, oh, yeah, he, I think he heard Disposable and got got some ideas on where he wanted to take his album, which is which is cool, which is which is what we all do. Well, and, and I think you should do that. I mean, that's how you keep the lessons of hip hop in the genre, like, you know, the, the founding elements of hip-hop are still important today and a lot of people don't even know the the parts of hip-hop that, that built in the cu culture. And it is more than just music. It is a true culture and you have to understand and respect those founding elements rather than just go off and just choose a, a random beat and not really understand what the music does. You said it. You said it. You hit the nail on the head. And what do you see for you in, in terms of your future? Because you, you're still dropping music. Um, you're still still working in terms of you're still performing. I know you dropped a Brooklyn story as well um, recently. So what do you see moving into, into 2021? Like, what do you see for this year? So um, the Brooklyn story album with me and Marco Polo came out in 2018. And... We toured with that album for, for, for two years. Um, our most recent tour, tour was the beginning of 2020 in Europe. And so the plan was uh, after this album um, that we were gonna do another one. We already had said that. Uh, I thought we would tour for the rest of 2020 and then go in the studio, but the pandemic hit obviously, so no touring whatsoever. Um, so it kind of sped up the timetable on you know, what we would do. I just, I, I started to venture into other writing projects as a way to kind of keep my, keep myself busy. I wasn't ready to write that album. I was figuring that I was going to start writing that the following year, like at the beginning of 21, which is where we are now. And so, um, but Marco has delivered me 
I have a folder of, of beats, really incredible beats, music to write to. Um, and I haven't written, I've written to two or three maybe, but I don't like to force the creative process. I like for it to come organically and naturally. So I have the music and I just, I, I just wait for that inspiration. I wait for those, that moment where I wake up one morning at 6 a.m. And I say, I know what, I know what this album is going to be about. I know what I want to rhyme about. Um, and he's done his part. I, I, I got about 20, 18 to 20 beats that are dope. Like I just listened to a bunch of them the other day just to remind myself what I had. And so it's just a matter of that moment where I go, okay, now it's time to start writing. And he, he's, he's been patient. He's been waiting for me. Um, but I've been, I've been, uh, immersing myself into some other writing projects um uh, a hip-hop musical um uh, that i've been that i've been working on for about two years awesome what's that about um it's actually loosely based on three of my albums uh aloha summer disposable arts and the falling season very loosely based on those albums but if you're familiar with the skits on those albums then you'll be familiar with some of the characters that are in the musical some of the names of the characters that are in the musical and um, I've been working on the music now. I'm at, I'm at the point where I've been creating the music for the last year. The whole 2020 has been just focused on the music. Um, I have a script. It's, not, it's never complete because um, we're always editing and changing. And right now my script is about 20 pages too long. So I need to cut it down a little bit. But it's coming along very, very, very nicely. I'm excited about it. The music part is the part that's trickier, believe it or not. Um, because now I have, you know, when I do my albums, normally I do the music first and then I figure out the skits afterwards. And I write the scripts based on the storyline after that music is done. So now this is like the reverse order. I have the script done, the storyline, the characters, and now I have to build the music around it, um, which has been more challenging, but so far so good. Um, I'm going to be, we're going to be doing a mixtape um, of music from the, from the musical that's going to be performed by artists. This won't be a cast album. This will just be different artists that I've, re I've already reached out to about four or five artists to come in to record music for this musical. And we're going to release it as a, as a mixtape. It'll probably be on vinyl um, as well as digital. Um, a nice collector's item. Um, and so, like I said, I've been talking to a few different artists that are going to, record some of these different songs that will be in the musical later down the road we'll do a cast album where the actual actors are gonna come back and record the cast album where they actually gonna do the songs the actors will but that's that's the next step is is, is this um sort of mixtape this hip uh, musical mixtape and i've also been working on a tv uh series um i started writing that this summer as well um i got the pilot episode complete and i'm working on the next the, the second episode uh right now i just actually just took like two weeks off from it because i was just so i was just so immersed in it it was taken away from my work on the musical um i was like every day waking up working on the tv series thing and the musical was getting neglected the musical is much further along so i just took like two weeks away from it um but another really dope idea and and, and these these writing projects are what I view and I, I see as my exit strategy uh, from, you know, 
being a solely music uh, artist. Because there's other there's other things I want to do with my writing, not just make music. And I've been feeling that way for a while. And now it's finally, you know, I'm finally taking steps to to make that happen. Well, man, that honestly, they both sound awesome. Like I, I personally love theater shows. Like there is something about going to a theater and seeing the live performance. It's like going to a live, live, you know, music performance. But there is a story in there as well. So, um, and and the one thing that I've always kind of been like, I wish there was a hip hop. Uh, theater show there's not too many out there there haven't been any down here in Australia but um, that sounds like it would be would be awesome to to listen to and um, hopefully that that comes out nice and quickly for you and you know you said something that um, I actually started writing a tv show a while ago before I I did this podcast but me and my my friend um, he actually has a podcast now as well funny and failure um, if you ever want to check it out but um, he he still writes. And I remember when we were writing the TV show, the hardest part was cutting down the script. Some like you have a long script and you want to get all your, your jokes. You want to get everything out there. And the hard part is you sometimes just got to cut stuff. And that was, that was always the hardest part for me. Yeah. I wrote my, the, the pilot episode. Cause I never wrote TV before for TV before. So I didn't really know the rules. And so I was about 90 page, pages into the pilot episode and then I reached out to a friend who's in the business and I was like, you know, how 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 long should a script be for for a 90 minute cuz I was no I mean for a 60 minute, you know, 1 hour show. And he's like, you know, the rule of thumb is 50 to 60 pages. They 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 usually estimate a page per minute. And so he said 50 to 60 pages and I was like, man, I'm on page 90 something like I need to pull back. So it actually worked out because what I, the material that I had was actually the next two or three episodes. So I just chopped all of that stuff down and, and made kind of the first episode end at a certain point. But because I, because I cut so much stuff, I have already episodes two and three, like already, I know where I already know where the story's going because it was already going there in what I thought was the pilot. Yeah. And that that is the benefit. I know when I was writing mine, like we wanted a thirty minute um, episode, and we had sixty to seventy pages, um, and we were like, "Oh God!" It's it, part of it is really challenging because uh, we planned out the full first season, so we already knew where we wanted the episodes to go, and it was a sitcom, so a little bit different. But um, just cutting some of the jokes that you like, and just cutting this and cutting that, sometimes it's like, ah. Oh. I just want yeah, to what is it? it like you get attached not, to it. Not what I had. This is not yeah. what I it's, it's not what I thought it was going to be. Do you do you feel the the same way with your music projects? Do you ever feel like, you know what, I made this dope track but it doesn't fit with the theme of the album? That doesn't really happen. That hasn't happened for years. Um probably my album uh, sitting on Chrome album in 95. There was about 3 records that didn't make the album. But it wasn't even that they didn't fit. It was, the album was just too long. It was just too much music. And I'd never done a project where I made too much music. But, you know, um, during that time period, like pretty much a typical album was probably like 12 tracks, at the most 14. And I had 16 and I had three extra songs that I didn't know what to do with. And so we kept, we kept them off the album. Um, but typically my creative processes I, everything i make is for the album it has a 
it has an intention and purpose to be on the album. I don't do throwaway songs just for the hell of doing them and pick the best 10. Like that's what a lot of people do. I don't do it that way. Why do you think people do it that way? Like, why do you think that people just say, you know what, I'm going to make 20, 30 tracks and then just pick the best 10? I don't think they have a vision. I don't think they have a vision for what, what they're trying to do. They just want to hit record. They just want to, they just want to be on the radio. So they do as, they do as many records as they can. And they actually rely on other people's ears to pick their records for them. Like they'll play it for the label, A&R person, their friends. And like, they won't even have enough confidence in what they've created to say, here's my 10 songs. This is my album right here. Here's my 10. They need other people to help them pick the, pick them, pick the music. Yeah. And, and I think as well, something that I've spoken about before on the podcast, but these days you see a lot of albums with a lot of different producers. Like it is hard to have so many people be on the same page and make a solid album. But when you have, you know, one or two producers with you that are making the beats and you can communicate that vision, it's a lot easier to make sure that, you know, the vision is adhered to. Well, that was my formula for many years. I didn't do an album with one producer until 2012, which was the M.A. Doom album where I rapped over all M.F. Doom beats. Um, and then after that, I was like, this is kind of cool. Um, and so I did the falling season in 20, <clears throat> 2015, I think I dropped, um, with Kick Beats. And that was my first like true single producer album. And I like the idea of only having to talk to one person. But if you look at my previous albums, um, they were all multiple, multiple producers. Do you think that they held through was because you had a really strong vision that regardless of which producer you had, you were like, this, I know what I want. So I need to make sure that the only people that are helping me are those people who are going to help me get what I want. I don't think that happens a lot in a lot of the albums that we see at the moment. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. It was it was me knowing, having the vision for what the album was going to be, knowing ha, knowing what the sound, what I wanted the sound to be, and then picking the right production to fit that sound. And how was it working with MF Doom? Obviously, rest in peace. Um, he passed away recently as well. But how was that experience of working with him and working on his beats? Well, we didn't, you know, that album, all those instrumentals, with the with with the exception of like one or two, all those instrumentals were previously released. Um, records that he had done with other people, um, or for himself, and he had just put out his instrumental series, and I just got a hold of it and picked a couple of joints and started writing music, writing songs to them. So we didn't necessarily work together on the project. I I just got his instrumentals and started making records. Um, I played it for him. Um, I played it for him in 2011. We had we had a show together in the, at the Montreux Jazz Festival, and I went back to his room after the show, and I played him like eight, eight or eight or nine songs that I'd already kind of recorded, laid down, and he was kind of he was blown away. He was amazed, and then that's when I asked him, you know, if he would do a verse uh, for one of the songs. And he said, absolutely. And so he went back home and five months later, I guess, uh, he delivered he delivered a dope verse for the album. But we didn't we weren't in the studio together like working like that. Well, he is like kind of a 
he keeps himself like quite underground. Like there's not known about MF in terms of who he is as an individual. And like, he likes to keep a lot, he liked to keep a lot of, you know, his personal life extremely secretive, which is, you know, rare these days because these days it's the opposite where everybody wants to have their personal life out and spoken about. And, you know, the saying is, you know, there's no such thing as bad news. Whereas I think MF Mm. was completely different. He wanted to keep his private and his career life extremely separate. Absolutely. In terms of one of the tracks that I did want to talk about with you was um, Hold You. When I heard that track um, and it is all about, it's like a metaphor between, you know, holding the mic and it sounds like you're talking about getting a girl or getting, getting someone and mm-hmm. just that metaphor of the microphone and the girl and how, you know, different people looking at her or looking at the mic. How did that concept come into play? Because when I listened to that, it, it blew my mind the first time I listened to that. It started with the sample. Um, you know, shout to Ayatollah who produced it. So that that sample, it's the way I hold you. That was already in there. Um, and so because that was part of the beat, it, it, it had me kind of open my mind up to, well, how do I use that? Because that's, I like what that, that sounds dope to me, but how do I use that? How do I, how do I make that about something? And of course the obvious was girl or whatever. And I think I probably started writing it like I was writing about a girl. And then some, some, something came over me and I said, no, let's, just go non-traditional and do something a little bit different. And at that point, that's when I, you know, the the idea morphed into a, a, a song about a microphone. And that's when I really got excited about writing it. Because when you're just writing about a girl, it's like, ah, uh, you know, like that's kind of more typical. But then I like being clever and I like, you know, pushing that creative envelope. And so it was a lot more fun to, try to figure out phrases that sound like they could be about a girl or a mic. And, and for me, that was more creative and more fun to, to write. And it sounded that way that like, I've, I'm a big fan of number one vocal samples within hip hop tracks. I think there is me a certain too. lightness that it it's nice contrast because especially hip hop voices, they tend to be a bit deeper, a bit rougher. And then when you have a light vocal sample, it's just such a lovely contrast and allows you as an artist to just really go for it. Um, there's, there's a balancing act. Like there is a true art with sampling vocal samples. Yeah, that's true. And and if you listen to my production over the years, you almost, almost every track has some sort of a vocal sample in it, whether it's a rap little piece or uh, something else, there's always a little vocal piece in there. Well, one of the other tracks that I really liked was get shot from the Brook, a Brooklyn story. Um, yeah. That one samples Jay-Z in the scratched hooks. Um, that was produced as well phenomenally. And that just the, the verses and the whole track together fits so well. Like it, it's just created. You can definitely tell that you and Marco Polo were on the same page in that track and in that album. That beat, a lot of people don't know this, but that beat was actually submitted years before. I got that beat in 2009 from Marco and I wanted to use it on the album with me and Ed OG, the A&E album. 
And I reached out to Edo. I let him hear the beat. I wrote, actually wrote uh, my my verse. That very first verse on the song, I wrote that verse back in 09. Wow. And um, I let him hear it. And he was like, it's cool, but nah, I think, I don't think this, I don't think, so he didn't want it on the album. I was like, okay. And I just held on to it all those years from, from 09 all the way up to 2018. I held that beat with that first verse. Like the, I had a rough of that verse and I just had it in my laptop. And I told Marco, I'm using this. I don't know what I'm using this for, but I'm using this. And he's like, all right. And then once we started working on the album, I said, yo, I'm gonna write a second verse to it. And I started kind of jotting down the second verse and it actually worked out. You know, I'm glad Edo didn't didn't use it for that album because it, it worked out for me. Yeah, and it came through really strong. The music video works all together. I don't know, it, it kind of reminds me of like a a DJ premiere style kind of beat in a in a way, like the the heavy drums, the the scratches, the sample of using a hip hop artist. Uh, to to sample in there it just really works and obviously your voice and your flow really hit the nail on the head that particular uh chorus had nothing to do with me like i'm usually super hands-on when it comes to my my records and what the hook's going to be um but i actually i actually relinquished some of my uh you know normally ultra involved self and i said okay you know marco Marco reached out to his guy Shiloh out in Canada, and I was like, "Here's the rhymes. I don't know what the hook is. See what y'all come up with." And they came up with that, and it was dope. Yeah, definitely. And if you haven't checked out that album, highly recommend checking out that album. Um, I think it's definitely one that people have been sleeping on for sure. Um, right. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about was the, you know, the the period of East versus West. That is mm. an iconic hip hop period. And that is when, you know, you were, you know, living New York, you know, the the East Coast. How did you view that period of time and that period of hip hop history? Yeah, I was living on the East Coast in, in Brooklyn, but I was signed to Delicious Vinyl, which was on the West Coast in California. Um, and so my my hope was that the two coasts could not just coexist, but almost collaborate in a way and support each other. The problem is that New York was just, you know, it's my city, it's where I'm from, but we were just so, so arrogant about, you know, it was created here and anybody else doing it, they're, they're just guests in our home. And I could see the um the shift in the attitude of other regions west coast south you know because new york we we didn't accept anybody like you had to be like we accepted like ghetto boys and but a lot of that other stuff like like even nwa nwa didn't didn't pop in new york when when they came out um so a lot of a lot of a lot of those artists and people that lived out there the fans they started to kind of feel disrespected by the way New York, you know, viewed them. You know, it's not good enough. It's not lyrical enough. Get out of here. You know, we got Rakim and Big Daddy Kane and KRS-One. Y'all, y'all can't hold a candle to these guys. And they were rapping. They were just doing their own thing. Like they maybe weren't the most sophisticated uh, lyric lyrical dudes, but they had a message, and they had a message that resonated with a lot of people. And so um, 
they found their own lane and they realized, yo, we just went platinum and New York didn't even buy our shit. Like we don't need New York. So that was the shift. And that was where, you know, and then, and then, and then Dre drops the chronic and, and, and then all of a sudden New York is like, Oh, the chronic. Oh, we like that. And they, New York was killing the chronic playing it like crazy. But at that point, the West coast was like, you come to us. We don't, we don't go to you no more. We don't need your acceptance. You come to us. But that's just that's always been the nature of New York. You you actually can hear stories from New Jersey artists right across the bridge. They'll tell you like, yeah, you know, uh, we came to New York, try to perform, got booed off the stage. Once we said we were from New, York, New Jersey, everybody started booing. Like New Jersey's like, uh, you know, right next door, and that's just how it was. And so I was I was kind of caught in the middle a little bit because I wanted to make music that could play everywhere and you know i did i did that remix born to roll which took off on the west coast the, the very first place they played it was the bay area san francisco and it blew up like unexpectedly blew up to where all of a sudden like i was doing all of these i was doing all these like commercial radio stations and ads and I was performing at these events that commercial these commercial radio stations were throwing, you know, where you just kind of jump on stage at a club and there's 300, you know, teeny boppers in the crowd. You perform your one record that everybody knows because it's on the radio so much. And then you get off stage. Like, it wasn't even like real true shows, um, at least not by my standard. But it kind of showed me the other side. It showed me that commercial side. Um, and, you know, it was a tightrope. I, 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 I tried to walk this tightrope. Unfortunately, New York wasn't very receptive to me being accepted in other markets. And so a lot of New York fans kind of abandoned me. Um, they, they sort of uh, wrote me off as, oh, you're, you're with them now. Uh, because I had shot in a couple of videos. I shot, I shot Born to Roll and I shot INC Ride in L.A., Hollywood Boulevard. Um, so if you look at those videos, you know, being from L.A., a lot of people told me when they saw those videos, they thought I was from L.A. Like they really thought I was from there. And because the images, you know, the, the cars, the girls, the style of the video. Um, and so I was just like walking this tightrope. I was from New York. I was from the East Coast. I was repping lyrics and East Coast, you know, flow and all of that. But at the same time, some of these some of the beats that I was rapping to were more appealing to other markets south west coast midwest and so it was a tough spot to, to be in because i was being rejected by my home city where i started and i was being accepted by other markets that were just completely brand new to me that i didn't know anything about they knew nothing about me they didn't even know i was on symphony like they literally thought born a row was my first song um and i was two albums in already so it was a tough time I look back at it and I think about, you know, I think about a lot about that time period uh, because I was signed to, like I said, I was signed to Delicious Vinyl in LA. I spent a lot of time in LA um, living out of hotels and we were doing more promotion, more radio promotion in on the West Coast than we were on the East Coast because the East Coast wasn't playing my song. It wasn't until New York didn't start playing Born a Roll until after it had been in every other region in the country. It was in heavy rotation in every other region in the country. And then all of a sudden, 
New York jumped on 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 board. And I say New York, I just mean like the the the, the New York DJ, the main New York DJ, Funkmaster Flex. I think he fought it. He fought it as long as he could, and then he realized he couldn't fight it anymore. It was it was it was a hit everywhere except New York. So he started playing it, which was a surprise to me. Um, but it was too late. It had already started to die down in other markets, and, and he was late. He was late on it. Um, but I look I look back at that time period, and one of the things that I, I tell myself all the time is I wish that I had. Because I, I I spent that whole time period from like 95 to 98, 97. I spent that whole time period trying to get New York acceptance back. Um, everything that I did was, you know, I, I left Delicious Vinyl. I signed to an East Coast label. The music that I was doing was was at that time that didn't, didn't come out. That stuff was all like trying to appease the East Coast audience. And... I was producing a lot of it. And when I look back, I just wish that if I, if I had approached it differently because the West Coast really embraced me, if I had just said, you know what, I'm going to move out here and I'm going to just start producing for artists out here. I think I probably wouldn't be the recording artist that I became, but I think I would have been a lot more successful as a producer. I probably would be a household name. I probably would have had hits on the radio not bomb, not that I rap on, but that other other West Coast artists were rapping on. There was a high demand for me as a producer at that time, but I was I had no I wasn't interested in it. I didn't want to produce for any West Coast artists. I just wanted New York to just welcome me back, and I spent all my time trying to get that New York acceptance, and it wasn't working. Do you think that that was because you were still young, and that you know it's never easy when your hometown turns around and goes, you know what, no thanks. You know, that, yeah, yeah, that, that yeah. is a, a hard period and a hard transition to go through when you're only just trying to do your best and you're only trying to do your best and make the best music you can. Right. I'm, I'm in my, I was in my mid-20s, you know. Um, I, um, it probably hurt, you know. I wanted, I wanted, I didn't, I didn't know what I did wrong. That, that's, that's kind of what it was like. What, what did I do wrong? You know, the beat I was rapping over was a, was a, Everybody was calling it a West Coast beat, but it was actually an East Coast beat. It was actually a record that was on Def Jam. I sampled. It was on Def Jam. It was original concept. Um, Russell 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 Simmons was talking on it, you know. Um, and it was it was just a tough time because it 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 was literally draw a line in the dirt, and you had to pick a side, and you couldn't walk that that tightrope. I said I was walking. They weren't allowing that. Like. No, you can't be with them and with us. You got to pick one. And based on the last couple of videos you dropped, you pick that side. So stay over there. And that, that, that was kind of, you know, nobody actually said that to me, but that was the sentiment that I, that I felt. Why do you think it was that New York, like, you know, the East Coast said that and had that sentiment rather than the West? Like, it, it strikes me that, you know, the West would be more inclined to be like, you know what, you're from Brooklyn, you're from the East Coast, stay over there. When really it was the opposite. Nobody on the West Coast knew I was from. That's the funny part. They didn't know that I was from the East Coast until after, you know, many interviews. So many people I've run into, like currently that I that I run into, and they said, "Yo, when I heard that song, I thought you were from here. I thought you were from here. I heard some people said they heard I was Mexican, like they hadn't <laughs> seen the videos. They thought I was Mexican and I was from L.A. and and that's part of the reason why the record." took off because they thought I was a native. Well, 
in the end, it doesn't matter why it takes off. It, it just matters that it resonates and that, that it hits. And clearly it resonated with a lot of people. It's just obviously a shame that, you know, rather than enjoying the success and thinking about how you can, you know, build on that and the part of that is youth um, that you were focused on, you know, trying to get back into your hometown. And, you know, obviously you're back now and people embrace you with open arms. But during that period, it was tough for a lot of artists to figure out where they really stand. And, you know, the the Biggie and Tupac beef, that was, you know, way over the top and it just amplified everything that everybody was feeling. Yeah, it did. And, you know, I don't even know if it was really necessarily a beef. I know, I know on, on from Big's standpoint, from his perspective, he wasn't beefing with Tupac. Tupac was mad at him and he was just basically trying to say, I, I had nothing to do with what happened to you. And Pac just wasn't trying to hear it. And I think after a minute, Pac realized that the controversy of them beefing was actually good for good for record sales. So he started, he started amplifying it more and, you know, saying a bunch of stuff that he did a diss, you know, he did the hit him up and all that. All of that stuff was, more of a marketing thing than anything else. Um, and they sold tons of records because of it. But it, what it did was it, it really drew a really sh- hard line in the sand between the two coasts. Um, and, you know, and, th- and then Big Drops Who Shot You, which wasn't actually about pop, but the timing of when it dropped just made it that much, you know, more impactful. And people just believed it even more. Oh, wow, that. He talking about Pac. Maybe he did have something to do with it. And and none of that stuff was true, though. Did you ever meet either Tupac or Biggie? I met both of them. I met both of them. Um, I, I met Pac twice. The, the first time I met Pac was at a club um, in New York City. Um, it used to be Studio 54. They changed the name. I can't remember what the, what the new name became. Um, and he was actually there with Big. They were there together. Oh wow! And I met him. I met him backstage. Big was doing like big. Big had like a two or three song performance that he was doing, and I don't even know why I was even there. But Pop was in backstage waiting to go, waiting for Big to bring him on stage, and he bigged me up and he's like, "Yo, we should work together." And I was like, "All right, yeah, cool." I, I didn't even. It wasn't even something. It's like people say stuff like that in the industry all the time. Yo, let's, let's do a joint. And go, all right, yeah, well, no doubt. Let me up. Um, it was just re- real, real quick, real casual. But I remember that meeting. And then a couple of years later, I was in LA around the time when Born and Roll and all that was popping off. And I was coming out of Prince's Club. He had a club called Glam Slam. And I think I was leaving and he was coming in. And he big, he just super big me up. Yo, when we gonna do something, man? When we gonna do something? I was like, I don't know. You know, it, 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 you know, I hate telling those stories now because they're posthumous and people like, like, I don't believe that shit. He's just saying that. Like, I, I don't know. You, you almost don't want to tell those stories because it sounds like you're trying to pat yourself on the back. You know, you're putting words in a dead man's mouth, that kind of stuff. So I, but those are the two times that I met Pac and I met Big. I'm actually have more interaction with Big because when he first came in the industry, 
um, and he was about to sign to Bad Boy, um, he didn't have representation. And so uh, his mentor, DJ Mr. C, me and me and Mr. C are very close. And C hit me up and was like, yo, Big needs a lawyer. And I, and I put him in, I got on a three-way call with him, put him in touch with my lawyer at the time, Gail Butler, to help him um, negotiate his contract. And he signed a bad boy. And then, you know, me and Big didn't have a lot in common. He was a big weed smoker and I wasn't into that. Like I actually, like people were smoking weed in, in the room. I just left the room. I didn't want to be in the room even. So, um, but you know, uh, we were around each other a good number of times. Um, like I said, we didn't have that in common. And a lot of times people who smoke weed, they don't trust people who don't smoke weed. That's just how it is. It's like, what's up with this guy? Like, why he don't smoke? What's wrong with him? He the feds or something? What's going on? So it was always like, a, I don't think he and I would ever have like hung out like that. You know what I mean? Because we didn't have that in common. And that was, you know, weed smoking was like a, a bonding thing for a lot of artists in the industry at that time. Well, I think, you know, touching on a couple of things you said, I think, you know, I don't think people can say that for you personally, that you, you're putting words into, you know, these artists' mouth. I mean, from... For if you look at you know all your interviews, there is no real line. You just tell tell it how it is. Like you're not putting mm -hmm. on a show. And as you said at the very beginning of this podcast, you stop caring what people think. So if you stop caring, you're just going to tell it how it is. So you know, I always I always enjoy listening to to those experiences in in terms of you know what you were thinking and 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 how that was in terms of time frame uh, in, in your career in your life and. Um, I think you're definitely right. I think even right now, the weed smoking is is still a big part of hip hop culture, and you see a lot of druggy raps. That's not my style of rap personally. Um, if if you like it, you like it. Uh, I have no problem with it. But you also see that that style of of druggy rap come through, and um, you know, to get into that crowd, you also have to be you know willing to do that kind of stuff. So it's still something that holds forward in the culture and. Obviously, for Biggie, he was known for smoking weed all day, every day. Yeah, yeah. And that's pretty much what it was. And I stayed as far away from that stuff as possible. Is there a reason why you stay away? I didn't want my close mind like that. Like, I just wasn't, it wasn't my thing. It wasn't my thing. I I was, I was always kind of, I grew up as kind of more of a straight arrow. Like, I never smoked a cigarette or I didn't even have a drink until I graduated from college. Like, I never even tasted alcohol until I graduated from college. Um, and the interesting thing is that my mom smoked when I was young. My mother used to have, you know, little, little joints on the living room table or whatever out. But, um, I, something about it, I didn't like that she smoked and, and she smoked cigarettes and she smoked weed at the time. And I, it, for, I don't know why I didn't like it. I don't know what, maybe something my grandmother said. I don't know what made me you know, have this adverse reaction to it. But I was just like, oh, I don't like that. And I, and I tried it when I was like 13 or something like that. I was with some kids and, you know, a little older than me and they were smoking in the hallway and I'm going to try it. And I took a couple of puffs and, and just the whole um, concept of, 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 of taking this thing from another person and it's all spitty and wet. Like I'm, I'm like a, a germaphobe as it is. So, I would never be able to pass a joint around and smoke it with somebody with their spit on it. Like I, I just, I'm a, I'm a nut like that. I'm like, oh, I can't do that. That's disgusting. 
But back then, just to try it, you know, just to, I, I took a couple of pulls or whatever. And I was like, this is dumb. Like, first of all, it's nasty. And then I don't feel anything. So I'm not ever doing it again. And I was, and I never smoked again. Well, to be honest, it makes sense to me. Like, you know, you got to, especially now with coronavirus, like the thought of sharing, you know, a joint seems really weird. You know, it's weird how the coronavirus has changed kind of public perception of and like human interaction um, in terms yeah. of what do we normally do? Like handshakes have gone away. You now touch elbows. Like I like handshakes personally. Um, but yeah, it, it's strange how the things that we took for granted now we look back on and go, I would never do that. Right. I mean, I, did, I felt that way but way back when I was 13. Like this is nasty. You were just ahead of the times. I guess. <laughs> well, man, I just wanted to say um, thank you for coming on. I only have one question that I have a plan on this podcast, and it's the last question that I ask. Um, and it may be the hardest one, but the question is, if you had to recommend one hip-hop album or one album, sorry, it could be any album other than your own that every single person should listen to, what would it be? Great Avengers of Slick Rick. First album. That was... Easy. I personally love Slick Rick. Uh, a children's story is still one of my favorite tracks of Slick Rick. But and as well, another veteran of hip hop um, who who led the way. So um, check it out if you haven't heard of Slick Rick. Go check it out. Um, influence again, so many artists. And I think a children's story is referenced in is is to me almost the most referenced hip hop track there ever is. Like so many hip hop tracks reference it. Rick was a huge influence. Um, I don't mention him enough in interviews when people ask me. I always go to the, I go straight to the lyrical guys. I always say, you know, Rakim, King, LL, KRS. Um, but I've been, lately I've been making sure that I mention Slick Rick because, you know, he kind of taught me how to write a story. I learned how to write a story rap from listening to his songs, his, 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 it wasn't even, they weren't even songs really at the time. They were just tapes. Like Lottie Dottie wasn't a hip hop song. It was something they did at a club um, as a routine to kind of get the crowd, you know, get crowd reaction. And so he had, you know, this story, this, this entertaining story about a girl. And there was always a little, you know, sexual thing that happened that towards the end and something, surprise ending type deal but listening to that record and he had another joint he had another routine before it was a song a joint called that girl is a slut where he was like trying to go even more dirtier than Lottie Dottie um and so we would play those tapes all the time and so I learned how to write a story rap from listening to those those routines as we called them back then and um he should get more credit yeah, I agree. I think he's, again, he seems to be like a, a rapper's rapper. If you love hip-hop and if you love the history of hip-hop, you'll know him. But in terms of the mainstream artists right now, like in terms of the audience coming up, they probably would have never heard of Slick Rick. It's it's something that is definitely gone uh, un underappreciated, in my opinion. Well, so surprisingly, he's actually on West Side Gun's most recent album. Uh, he's on two songs on West Side Gun's album, so... There's, there's an example of a younger generation artist that's reaching back and, you know, 
he obviously liked Slick Rick because to put him on two songs tells me that he, he he must really like Slick Rick. And hopefully that also kind of brings back a Slick Rick resurgence in terms of, you know, people go back and, and appreciate his music. Like, you know, Grandmaster Kaz recently was on um, DJ K-Slay's Rolling 50 Deep where they had 50 rappers all doing like a eight bars uh, and just going. It was like a, a huge cypher. Um, mm. That was that was to me. I loved his verse on that. He just brought like the the old school style and just oh, that was amazing. So if you haven't checked that out, that's one of my recommendations. It's eighteen minutes long. That track. It's on YouTube. Yeah, it's on YouTube. I recommend watching the video. They got people like um, Joel okay. Ortiz, uh, Benny the Butcher's on there. Uh, Bun B is on there as well. Um, just a bunch of amazing hip hop artists. I won't tell you every single one. Because um, I think part of me, when I was watching it, I was like, damn, look at who else they got and just so many amazing artists. So, yeah, and the beat is fire. I absolutely love that that beat. I'm going to check that out. Awesome, man. Well, um, I appreciate you coming on. Master Ace, one of the veterans of hip-hop and a, a true a true OG. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure for me to be able to to speak to you and just listen to your opinions on on hip hop and your career. Um, and and I really appreciate your time. And if if you haven't checked out his discography, definitely check it out. A Brooklyn Story is his most recent album that dropped with Marco Polo. Um, and then you can look through from you know take a look around that dropped in 1990 to disposable arts i know we spoke a bit about that today um there are just so many amazing tracks that that you've gone through and you know i think that for for anyone who hasn't really like gone into your discography highly recommend you'll learn something new you'll learn something about the art form and you'll learn um about kind of you as a person as well Thank you, man. That's that's high praise. I appreciate it. And I just want to say before we, we finish up, is there anything else you wanted to plug? Anything else you wanted to shout out? Obviously, you've got um, you know, you've got a few things in the works. You're writing a a musical and you're you're writing uh, a TV script as well. So there's a lot of things happening in terms of what you're working on. Yeah, definitely, man. Um, and then the next album with Marco Polo. Um, I'm gonna start writing that this year too so those are probably the most i would say pressing and immediate things that i'm working on and there's probably other things that are not as not as fully uh thought out yet so i probably won't mention those but yeah man i'm, I'm excited to see what the next few years have to come and you know obviously hopefully you get to come down to australia and do a tour as well at some point and we'll be able to see each other face to face rather than over zoom but um, you know, I, I think I'm very fortunate to be in a, an era where, you know, we can do this um, rather than be face to face that we can, you know, halfway across the world and we can still uh, have a time to to chat and, and kind of talk to each other. We'll, we'll definitely get there, man. I should shout out my, my, my website, masterace.com, M-A-S-T-A-A-C-E. A lot of, lot of really cool merchandise on there, hoodies, T-shirts, hats, socks, um, vinyl cds just go check it out pick up something nice for yourself or, or a friend and also a bunch of documentaries with you as well and videos and music videos so definitely check it out and there's more about master ace in terms of what he's been doing as well i definitely was there so um yeah 
big ups to to my man master ace and really appreciate you and appreciate you coming on the show thank you man take care of yourself man thanks for listening to the show please like and subscribe and follow me on instagram at the underscore hip hop hustle for all upcoming podcast news bye for now